You uh, probably have heard uh, in the news over the last number of weeks that there's uh, wildfires raging in the West Coast, and there's like dozens of different wildfires that are uh, ravaging through homes and, and communities and, and forests. And uh, three, three young firefighters, all in their 20s, uh, were caught unexpectedly when the wind shifted and uh, they perished together while they were fighting a fire. Uh, last month, a, a pastor and his family were on vacation in Myrtle Beach, beautiful Myrtle Beach. Uh, they were involved in an auto accident. His, his wife and uh, several children uh, had survived with minor uh, injuries, but the pastor didn't survive. He didn't make it. Some of you know Alan Ross. Alan Ross is a minister, a Scottish minister, who's been uh, coming here to the church over the last 10 years, at least once a, once a year. Uh, his, uh, his, his sister's son, his, his nephew, went in the water for a swim, didn't come out. His body was found a week later. Alan said, we are all heartbroken. Back in July, we received a prayer request. I sent it out for those of you who are on our emailing list. Uh, a 44-year-old mother of two had a stroke and was in grave condition. She's the sister of a firefighter who was killed in one of the towers on 9-11. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. Um, in the broken world in which we live, sometimes... Sometimes pain and sorrow and suffering is just so overwhelming, and, and, and none of us are exempt from that. None of us uh, are going through this world without escaping in some measure, some degree of pain and sorrow. Tears are a universal language. When Lee Strobel was doing research for his book, A Case for Faith, he asked researcher Bonner to to put a survey out there among, among people, even people that don't go to church, you know. And uh, he asked them, if, if you had opportunity to ask God just one single question, if, if you were given that opportunity, what would you ask? The overwhelming majority of responses that came back was this, why he allows pain and suffering in this world. Why does God allow pain and suffering in this world? In offering a theological answer to the question, it's important to, to, to bring out the issue of free will and the consequences of the fall. I mean, you just have to read the first few pages of the book of Genesis or the Bible and, and discover that it was Adam's disobedience that opened the door to, to sin and with it sickness and sorrow and death as a result of his disobedience. But it's also important to move the conversation to include the God of the Bible who has suffered for us and suffered as us by sending his son into this world. Because of Adam's disobedience, we suffer. But because of Christ's obedience, there is ultimately an end to suffering in sight. For Christ would rather suffer than see us abandoned. We, we sang that song, the second song in this set this morning, which, which, which said that you will not forsake me. You will not forsake me. And I, I was almost overcome because I know the point of this message this morning is that the one who came for us to rescue us, whom we call Savior, was absolutely forsaken for us. One of the greatest messages of the cross is that 
Christ fully embraced our suffering, that he experientially knows what it's like to suffer. In fact, he knows what it's like to suffer pain and anguish and and agony and sorrow more than any other human being that's ever lived because he has suffered more profoundly than any other human being has ever suffered. In fact, he is called in Scripture the man of sorrows. So we have a Savior who who, who can completely identify with our suffering, but we cannot completely identify with his suffering because there's an element of great mystery involved in it. For anyone who would resent God for all of the sorrow and suffering that visits this world, and it does big time, it's good to remember that God sent his son, born in poverty, to experience a real life of a man who dealt with hunger and, and, and dealt with thirst and dealt with all of the issues of temptation, who dealt with all of the, the, the little, little idiosyncrasies of family life and relationships, and, and, he, and he did it. He did it in perfection. And he did it experiencing abandonment and betrayal and pain and sorrow and suffering and ultimately death itself. But the big difference is that we have sinned and we, we, we deserve what we get. What, what we sow, we also reap. We, we deserve that. But, but even Pilate said of Jesus, I find no fault in the man. That there is nothing that he has done that is deserving of death. So when we, when we see the gospel, any resentment that we may have dissipates in eternal gratitude for what Jesus Christ has endured for us. Here's a fact that I want to share with you. There could be no salvation without suffering. There could be no salvation without suffering. Because sin entered into the world and and through sin, suffering, and death. So, So through death and through suffering, Jesus Christ has come to reverse the curse that was upon us. See, Jesus was not only born to die, but the manner in which he died matters. The manner in which Jesus died matters. And and if I could say it this way, that he he experienced eternal punishment. And we'll look at that in, in detail today. Last week I said that we were destined to be rescued by the greatest Savior from the greatest peril. And, you know, somebody asked, well, what exactly is this peril that Jesus saved us from. And one of the clearest, simplest answers is found in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And it says this very plainly, Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, most people get a little nervous when they hear that word wrath, when we talk about the wrath of God. In fact, the Bible mentions the wrath of God some 200 times in, in the Scripture. And the wrath of, of God is God's just and holy anger against evil and against sin. It's not, it's not as though we have to apologize for, 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 for some flaw in God's character. No, it is just as much as one of his perfections as is his goodness and his love and his faithfulness. The wrath of God, listen, we all know that it would be absolutely wrong if any of us looked at evil and, and did nothing about it, if it was in our power to do something about it. I mean, if, if you're not angry when you hear that, a ba- that aborted baby parts are being sold as merchandise, and you're not angry about that, if you're not angry when you hear of a child being molested or you, you hear of a woman being raped, 
And if you're not angry about stuff like that, then, then something is wrong. And if we're angry, being sinful and fallen with a fallen nature, how much more a perfect, holy God should be angry at, at that, that which is evil? Now, critics of, of, of God have accused God of child abuse, of cosmic child abuse, because he sent his son to die for guilty sinners. But Jesus is not abused, not when he voluntarily, not when he said, I give my life freely, no man takes my life from me. Jesus is not a victim, Jesus is a victor. And as a result of that, in my opinion, he's our champion. He's, what Jesus Christ did, and, and as we go through this, we'll, we'll see that it was the most courageous thing that any human being has ever done. And again, Jesus, fully man, fully God. John Piper writes this. He says, if, For if God did not punish his son in my place, I am not saved by my greatest peril, the wrath of God. We have only one hope, and it is that the infinite wisdom of God might make a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that I might become a son of God. It's one of the most eloquently profound, simple statements. If it wasn't that the Son of God endured the wrath of God, we could never become the sons and daughters of God. Jesus had to suffer immensely for us and as us. And so his anger was satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied when he made his Son to become sin for us who knew no sin, that in turn we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is, this is not grace at the expense of justice, but this is absolute divine justice and grace reigning through righteousness. Jesus is the ultimate hero. He's, the, he's not only heaven's champion, but he's the universal superhero of all time. All that Adam failed to do, Jesus Christ has accomplished. What Adam's disobedience did was, was strip us naked. And by, by Jesus being stripped naked for us, he clothes us in his righteousness. I love what Spurgeon writes. He says, you shall measure the height of his love, if it be ever measured, by the depth of his grief, if that could ever be known. The only way to measure the, the height of his love is by the depth of his, of his grief, of his sorrow, of his, of his agony. And you know what? It can't be measured. It's unknowable. It's immeasurable. We have a great Savior who is, who is great because he suffered so immensely for us. But I'm going to say this, that if we only measure the, the suffering and the pain of Jesus because of the nails and because of the, the crown of thorns and because of the, the, the spear that pierced his side, that we're only talking about one component of his suffering, and that's physical. But I want to say it this way, that worse than the pain of the cross was the shame of the cross. Worse than the pain of the cross was the shame of the cross. And I don't ever want to minimize what Jesus suffered physically. If you've ever seen the, the passion of the Christ, it, it comes close, I believe, to what Jesus physically suffered. But that's not all that Jesus suffered. The writers of the New Testament, of the gospel writers, th their emphasis is not upon the physical suffering of Jesus, but rather of his emotional, spiritual, and, and 
suffering that took place deep within his soul. This is, this is the reason why Paul the Apostle frames the cross as being utterly foolish, a stumbling block. It is intellectually illogical based upon the concept of a Messiah who has come to save us. The cross, the shame of the cross. You know what? The, the only thing I, I can think of that, that is even somewhat similar is, is the way that we look at beheadings of innocent people today. How obscene it is and how, how, how horrific and even demonic we, 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 we would classify that as being. The cross is, was, the, was the emblem of reproach and degradation and humiliation and disgust. It was, it was an obscenity. And Jesus experienced that obscenity for us. Only those who are the scum of the earth, the worst of the worst, were crucified. And who was it in the center cross but the best of the best was crucified for us. In Isaiah 53, when, when you read Isaiah 53, it, it, it appears to be like a news story that took place the day after the crucifixion. And, and the report is, is so specific and, and, and is so prolific or prophetic that it looks like it had to have been written the day after Jesus was crucified rather than eight centuries before Jesus was actually born. To describe the three hours of, of darkness that came upon the face of the earth in a transaction that took place between God the Father and God the Son before time began, is, is a mystery that we want to try to come to some understanding of this morning. We really need to be, be looking at this man of sorrows I, I made reference to before. In Isaiah 53, but you got to start in Isaiah 52, the last verse, around verse 14. Listen to what Isaiah said about him. Many were appalled at his appearance. Because he was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness. In other words, what took place to Jesus Christ when everything was said and done, he didn't even look like a human being. He was so grotesque. He was unrecognizable as a man. People who saw him were shocked and they were horrified. Who has believed our message? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The, 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 the our message is the prophets. Who had believed the prophet? Who could possibly believe this message? And the arm or the strength of the Lord have been revealed. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Saul, the king of the first king of Israel, was head and shoulders taller than everyone. And he was physically attractive and he had an appearance that people said he looks like a king. Jesus didn't look like a king. But Jesus was the king of kings. He was despised and rejected by men. There's that title, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, man of sorrows. I said last week that the, of all the titles that we could ascribe to Jesus, Savior is probably the most important to sinners like us, and it's the most precious. But in order for Jesus to, to wear the label of Savior, he had to first become the man of suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. In other words, what the apostle or the 
the prophet is saying here is that we judged him as being cursed of God. We, 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 we looked at him and, and, we, and we thought that he was being punished because of his wickedness. We thought that he was getting what he deserved. No wonder Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. There was an ignorance that came over the nation. Verse 5 says, but, but, I always love to come to a, a but in the Bible because it just, it's, the, the juxtaposition is, th- th- this is, what, this is what, the, what, what the prophet is saying, but, but here's the rest of the story. Here's the real story. Here's the real cause as to why he's being crushed. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Pierced, crushed, punished. Not for himself, but for those who would believe upon him. He became hideous, grotesque, and appalling. We, there's, there's a song lyric that I think about when we, we sing this. It's, just, it's, just, it's amazing. It says, it says, you gave your life a, in a beautiful exchange. You gave your life in a beautiful exchange. The exchange is that we become beautiful. He, because he was grotesque and hideous, and because he became repulsive, we become beautiful in God's sight. All all that we have, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, mercy, grace, all that we have, all this bliss that we have in Christ is the result of his suffering. Every blessing we have in eternity is the result of Christ's suffering. Every blessing in eternity. And we will forever and ever be grateful for all that the Son of God suffered on our behalf. Sam Storms said this, when we look at the Scriptures, we realize that the God-man, Jesus, was on the cross suffering the eternal penalty. Those two words jump out at me. Eternal Penalty, eternal punishment we deserve because of the infinity of God's holiness and the depth of our depravity. Because of God's holiness and the depth of our depravity. So without a doubt, Jesus suffered immensely physical. Again, I don't want to ever minimize that, not even for one single minute. Listen, if you've ever had a toothache that radiated throughout your whole face and your whole head, if you've ever had... Have you ever had a splinter underneath your fingernail and it feels like your whole, your whole hand begins to throb? You know? I, I don't know, but men are such wimps when it comes to pain. I got to tell you, 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 you ladies that have babies, I don't know how you do it. That's why men can't have babies, you know, because pain is just too much. And you know what? It, it just shows us that nobody likes pain. We, we, we resist pain. You go to the dentist, give me the, give me the, Give me the gas. Give me the, you know, what's that other thing called? Novocaine. Give me the Novocaine, you know. You have a headache. Oh, you reach for the Tylenol right away. Because it just shows you how vulnerable we are. But I want to say it this way, that nothing that Jesus experienced, none of the pain that Jesus experienced at the hand of men can compare to what Jesus experienced from God the Father in his soul. No, nothing that his body experienced 
can compare to what was done to his soul. It's one thing to feel the lash of a soldier's whip. It's another thing altogether to feel the lash of God's divine justice, his wrath being poured out. This is why, this is why Matthew 27, one of the utterance of Jesus from the cross, gives us a glimpse into what was going on here. L- l- listen to what it says. It says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. From 12 o'clock in the afternoon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, darkness came upon all the land. You know, th- this service is going to end somewhere around 12 o'clock, and, and you know, you're going to have... You're going to have three hours to do probably to, to go out, have lunch, maybe, you know, do a couple of things around the house. And you maybe even have, take time for a nap. In three hours, you can accomplish a lot. But in three hours, there was a darkness unlike the world had ever known before and ever since had come upon that hill called Calvary. While that darkness covered the cross over in the temple, the priests were slaying the lambs, cutting the throats of little lambs in celebration of the Passover. And while that was taking place, God had a lamb who was making peace through the blood of his cross. Verse 46 says, In the ninth hour, that is three o'clock, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why when we sang that song, you will not forsake me. You will never leave me. The Spirit of the Lord just came upon me in such a profound way. And this scandalous exchange that took place, undeserved mercy is being displayed. In this moment, Jesus does not see himself primarily as the Son of God, but he sees himself as sin sacrifice. Say it again. Jesus does not see himself in this moment when he cries out, my God, my God. He sees himself primarily as sin's sacrifice. Those three hours of indescribable judgment. Intimacy with the Father is severed. And I got to tell you, it's amazing what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, oh God, oh God. Jesus said, my God, my God. He didn't say, oh, Father, Father, because, again, he saw himself primarily as sin's sacrifice. And when Father drew away from his son, it was as if Jesus was clinging all the more to him, holding on to him like a little child, holding on to a father's legs, saying, I'll not let you go. You are still my God. I will not let you go. And so Jesus clings. It says, my God, my God. You know, it's not unusual for, for people who are being crucified to yell and scream and to curse and to, and to, and to, and to rant in, the, in the, the torment that they were experiencing. This is, this is not a scream of anguish because of pain. This is, this is the soul that has been abandoned by God. This is the soul of the man Christ Jesus who is being crushed underneath what it's like to be forsaken and rejected by God. See, to be forsaken by God for, for Jesus is, is, is far infinitely greater to suffer than it would be for any other human being because he's so perfectly holy. So we ask the question, how could, why would God forsake the only good man that's ever lived? Why would God forsake the only innocent man 
who's ever lived. The only logical explanation and answer is, number one, to vindicate the holiness of God and to satisfy God's wrath. But to also, out of love and obedience to his heavenly father, what Adam failed to do, Jesus accomplishes. But it's not only love for his father, it's also love for his bride that's been promised to him. Despite the horrible sufferings of Jesus physically, the emotional and spiritual anguish was far greater. And you know, this didn't begin with the lash, or it didn't begin with the crown of thorns, or when they struck him in the face and they said, they said, prophesy, which one of us struck you? No, no. That started, this man of sorrows started when he said, you remember in John chapter 12, he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. Jesus literally felt like he was going to die. And that's why the Garden of Gethsemane is such a holy place because he, he felt like he, he was not going to survive what was happening to him in the garden. When the gospel writers describe what Jesus was experiencing in the realm of his soul, they use words like this. He was distressed, deeply grieved. He was in agony. These words describe somebody who was in the grip of unbound horror. As Jesus looked in the cup, He saw the furnace that he was about to enter into, a separation from his heavenly father. See, there are far worse things than physical pain. And the weakness that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane, he first, he he falls to his knees, then he falls face down on the ground, and then he, he began to sweat so profusely that the Bible says his sweat became as if it were great drops of blood. Abandoned forsaken. Charles Spurgeon explains it like this, grief of mind is harder to bear than pain of body. You can pluck up courage and endure the pang of sickness and pain so long as the spirit is well and brave, but if the soul itself be touched and the mind becomes diseased with anguish, then every pain is increased in severity and there is nothing with which to sustain it. Spiritual sorrows are the worst of mental miseries. A man may bear great depression of spirit about worldly matters if he feels that he has his God to go to. He is cast down but not in despair. But if the Lord be once withdrawn, if the comfortable light of his presence be shadowed, even for an hour, there is a torment within the soul which I can only liken to, listen to this, the prologue of hell. I could only liken it, Spurgeon says, to the beginning of hell. We can bear a bleeding body and even a wounded spirit, but a soul conscious of desertion by God is beyond comprehension. And for three hours, when the darkness covered the earth and Jesus became so disfigured, so marred, because God was laying upon him the iniquity of us all, Every imaginable sin was being laid upon him. And the gruesome, loathsome, appalling figure on that middle cross, the greatest pain was being abandoned and forsaken so that you and I would never know what it's like to be abandoned by God. That's why I say that the, the greatest issue we will ever face is how we respond to God's plan of rescue. Let me, let me ask you, have you ever heard of the washcloth principle? Ever hear of the washcloth principle? Now, how many of you use a washcloth? 
Good, I'm glad some of you do. For something soiled to become clean, something clean must become soiled. For something dirty to become clean, something clean has got to become dirty. And that, that principle is just so simple, yet it points us to the need of a Savior. Someone has to take away our transgression, has to be made sin for us, who knew no sin, the perfect, holy, sinless Son of God. Because no matter how, how, much, how hard we try to do better, to, to, to try to atone for the past, it's like, it's like taking a dirty dish towel, taking a dirty cloth, and trying to smear ourselves clean. You only, you only smear the dirt around. You don't make it better. You make it worse. I said last week that there's no more important issue than how we respond to God's plan of rescue. Every human being will be measured. Every human being will be assessed on the basis of one simple question. What have you done about God's plan of rescue? What have you done with my son? There's nothing more imperative, nothing that will affect us more now in this life and in the life which is to come. To rest in the sufficiency and the accomplishments of Christ is the only logical thing that we can do when our eyes are open to the gospel, that the wrath of God that it was poured out upon our blessed substitute was to rescue us from this peril that we're talking about this morning. Because every blessing, every blessing we have in eternity is the result of Christ's suffering. I want to just invite you to read in your own time the rest of Isaiah 53. I don't have the time to, to look at that, but, but there are two other verses that I want to just point out to you that use the word suffering because, because Isaiah 53 is all about what Jesus suffered, but, but there's something glorious that comes as a result of that. L listen to this in closing. Verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. It was God's will according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. This is not plan B, folks. This is plan A from before the foundation of the world. The only way that we would ever come to know the depth of this love was that this was God's plan from the very beginning. Verse 11 says, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. There was an end to the suffering. And the end of the suffering wasn't just that he died, but that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again, and he rose again indestructible. There's a new life principle. You know, Jesus wasn't resuscitated. Jesus Christ came to life because of who he was, God's innocent, perfect son. The reason why we know that our sins are forgiven is because he came back from, from death, but he also now lives by the power of an endless or an indestructible life. For he shall see the light of life and be satisfied. What joy that is for us to know that Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. That there is indestructible Life promised to those that will believe upon him. They've already passed from death unto life. So the question is, 
The question is simple this morning. Have you, have you received Jesus Christ? And if you have, then, then there is that eternal gratitude for what he has suffered for us so that we will not experience the future wrath because it's coming. But I want to say it this way. This is not just being saved from something. That, that's, that, that, that's indeed true. It's not just being saved from wrath, but it's also being saved to something. And that something is someone. And that someone is to have a relationship. We sang about it in that third song, that new song that we sang. I, I, I want to have this connection with you, Jesus. You can have that before you leave today. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're not a follower of Jesus, before you leave today, a simple transaction of faith can take place. And I, I, want, I want to just invite you, if you're here and you fall into that category, and for those of you who are already in a great relationship with Christ, I, I just want to see you draw even closer to him with a greater appreciation. He didn't just forgive you of your sins. He suffered eternal punishment for you so that you would have everlasting life. Let's pray. So, Father, I thank you today for the word of God, and I thank you, Lord God, that you have spoken powerfully to us this morning out of the life of your Son. And we are eternally grateful, Lord God. We, we have gratitude in our heart for all that Jesus endured for us as us. Help us to draw closer to you, Lord God, in a vital, living relationship. As you're said to be the head of the body and we're the members of your bone and of your flesh in particular. I, and I do, I do ask this morning, Father, to search the congregation if there's even one person here that's not in a relationship with you, but today they've heard something that, that makes rational sense that they should have a relationship with you that it's not only being saved from something but it's being saved to someone so I, I pray for them right now and if, and if that applies to you would, would you just simply in your heart just before you and God right now just open up your heart say Jesus come into my life be the Lord of my life I receive you as Savior and as Lord, I turn away from sin and turn to you, my Savior. If you will do that this morning, I promise you that by grace are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. This gift can be yours right now as you've made that simple transaction of faith. Lord, we stand in your presence and we sit in your presence this morning in awe of all that you've done for us.